This is the Touchy Subjects Podcast. My name is Erin Billings and I am your host. In this episode, we are going to be talking about diversity in the church as this is Martin Luther King week. It is important to have these conversations and I'm so thankful to have had Eric Ellis, Uwim Ward and Bishop Anthony Pelt as guests. I know you are going to love hearing from them. Diversity, equity, and inclusion is something that has always been very important to me. I'm very lucky to have grown up in a diverse family, in a diverse church, in diverse schools, not to mention the North. I went to performing arts schools, so that tells you what kind of inclusive environment I was in from such a young age. I went to state school for undergrad, and being a music major, it was common for me to be surrounded by diversity all the time. So you can imagine my culture shock when I transferred to a whitewashed Christian university in the South and realized that not all Christians grew up in such a welcoming environment and that not all churches embraced diversity, equity, and inclusion the way that I was raised to. And that's why I wanted to have this conversation today around diversity in the church. And oh man, I have a amazing panel of guests for you today. I have a holy hothead, I have a bishop in the Church of God, and I have one of the nation's leading DEI experts here to talk with you. So thank you guys so much for being here. Uwim, I'm gonna have you go first. Please introduce who you are, what you do, and let everybody get to know you. Hi, my name is Uwem Ward. I'm also known as Coach Uwem or the Holy Hothead. I am formerly a preacher's wife in the Churches of Christ, and now I am a pastor and a spirit-led destruction coach. I work with women who are basically coming out of male-led spaces that have experienced that kind of experience like spiritual trauma, where their voices have been silenced, their emotions have been silenced, they have been guided into journeys that they didn't necessarily plan for. Maybe even stay-at-home moms who were like, I didn't plan for this, you know what I mean? And so I work with women to help them find their voice again. And my husband and I also recently launched a church. So we have a micro church that meets in our home, basically as a safe space for people that are scared to go to traditional church. I love that. I'm so glad that you have that space available for people. Thank you for being here. Pastor Anthony, can you go next? My name is Anthony Pelt. I'm the senior pastor of a wonderful church called Radiant Living Worship Center down in Deerfield Beach, Florida. And I also have the privilege of being the administrative bishop for the Florida Cocoa Church of God. Our wonderful host knows about us. We are connected through Church of God, Cleveland, Tennessee. And we're unique in the fact that my jurisdiction is predominantly black. Uh, It is probably one of five regions in our country that is led by an African-American leader. And most of the churches that I have jurisdiction of are African-American. I'm married, 31 years, have three children, two grandchildren that I had the greatest time with over the holiday season. I spoiled them real, real, real good. And I'm looking forward to the dialogue today. Well, that sounds like fun. My parents are first-time grandparents, and they're having a great time spoiling my nephew as well. And I'm like, where was this when we were growing up? I guess that's the fun part of being a grandparent. Thank you, Pastor Anthony, for sharing. Eric, I will have you go next. My name is Eric Ellis. I'm the president and CEO of Integrity Development Corporation. 
We're a management consulting firm out of Cincinnati, Ohio. Uh, we specialize in diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging, strategic planning, coaching, training. I've been in business for 32 years and uh, have really developed a wonderful passion for this space. My father was a pioneer, so a lot of people consider me a pioneer in diversity, and yet my father was a pioneer before me, born and raised on the farm. My grandfather had no goal but for his kids to be farmers. It was sports that took him to Anderson College in Indiana, and he met my wife. So my dad was a a consultant. My mom was a preacher. And so oftentimes people will hear a combination of those things, and my voice, both my parents are gone. But I used to see, uh, when I went to my dad's workshops and my mom's revivals, I saw the same things, people crying and really being transparent and being transformed. So looking forward to the conversation. My mom's a pastor as well. I love hearing about women pastors. And more importantly, I love supporting them. Thank you for sharing. Well, let's get into the conversation. We are not going to censor ourselves in this conversation. It is going to be very real and raw, and let's just dive right on in. So there are some people that say that racism and segregation does not exist. In what ways are you seeing racism, discrimination, or segregation in the church today? Let me share this. You know, this is always, this is like that third real topic. Full disclosure, you come to my church, it is primarily all African-American. Or what I call it, we may be multicultural, we're just all brown. So we may be American, we may be Haitian, we may be Bahamian, uh, but we just, we all have this pigmentation. And so one of the things that I've really always try to get people to understand is multiculturalism cannot uh, be pigeonholed because many times churches of color are multicultural. They just have the same pigmentation. So I try to remove it from that. However, I do think that one of the things that becomes very, very apparent is that it's our churches are desiring to be effective in the harvest. There are some limitations in how people think about who will be the one who harvests them. That there are expectations of me, I feel, that are not expected of someone else sometime of a lot of heat. Ladies feel the same way, that there are some things expected of them that are not expected of me as just a black guy. And I just, I always tell people this this issue uh, has its own little nuances because in my space, Many times, brothers, when I say brothers, I'm talking black men, are in this, this teeter. They, they want to be a man, but from Monday to Saturday, they've not been treated as a man. And so church kind of was that safe place where they became a man. They got a title. They were deacon. They were brother. And unfortunately, to my, my dear sister, she will tell you that sometimes the only examples of male leadership was always toxic or bad. So they, they, they brought that over to the side. They, 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 they didn't mean to. That's just the only thing they knew. And so when we're talking about diversity, I know I'm having to deal with, first off, getting over the fact that I'm comfortable if my culture attracts anybody. I'm comfortable if my culture allows people to come into this space. But I'm also comfortable saying that if you don't want what, what we're giving here, we're not going to force you to take it either. And don't tell me that because it's not that. 
it's not good. It's just not that. And that has been one of the things that I've tried to always keep in this conversation. Say, listen, McDonald's and Burger King both selling burgers. But if you want to have a flame broil, you ain't going to McDonald's. You're going to Burger King. So that's kind of my my one little preacher note there. Yeah, I would completely agree with everything that he just said. So the church that my husband and I were a part of for about 18 years was heavily male-led. Like women literally did nothing other than teach children and run potlucks. And when we kind of hit a snag in our marriage, that's what God used to disrupt, you know, one of my favorite words in the world. God used disruption to shake our marriage, which shook our relationship with him, our relationship with the church. And we started to see everything very, very differently. But yeah, my husband, he was a minister. And so he had the title, he had the significance and the privilege that came along with that. But what I had to wrestle with was that 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 involved privilege for me too. There's preacher's wife privilege that people don't really talk about a whole lot. And so when we were dealing with that struggle, you know, one of the first things that I wrestled with, I was like, but how is this going to impact me? (laughs) My husband was dealing with an addiction to pornography. He walked away from it a year before I even knew about it. So it wasn't an active problem, but it was something that we were trying to heal through. And my biggest concern was like, what are people going to say about me? And so when we left that church, we were kind of like thrust into okay, the whole world is different out here outside of this, you know, very male-centric bubble that we were living in. And so we started going to a predominantly white church that was soft comp. And so it was still male-led, but they had female pastors. And so we like, we felt a little bit safer, but then we started hearing things and it was like, okay, but they don't see us as black. Like, and it was just, it was so frustrating because we were like in this, this wrestling, trying to figure out where do we go where we can both be black leaders and I'm a woman and I'm a leader and like there was no place for us. And so the church that we attend now, aside from the one that we started, is much more diverse, very, very focused on diversity, which is part of why we're there. But still those same tensions. When I think about diversity, one of the things that I struggle with is that people don't actually understand how necessary it is to heal what you think before you can actually be in a diverse space and not be toxic. You know, you can have men in a space with women where they say, yes, I love my wife. I love my daughter. Yes, I love, I love, I love. But if you haven't recognized, okay, you know what? I kind of like the significance that I get from being above her. If you don't face that, it's not going to be a safe space for her. And so those are like the tensions of diversity that I really desperately hope that my, my company, my organization can help with because Nobody talks about it. You got to deal with the inside first. And honestly, that's the same issue with America. You know, white Americans haven't dealt with their issue with people of color. Therefore, you can pass all the laws you want. It's still going to be toxic. It just will be illegal. So they won't do it outwardly until it's legal again. (laughs) Okay. And so I would say to you that racism is a big word. And so when you say racism, people run for the hills. My father sort of was, his company is credited for coining the term diversity. So that's how long we've been in this space. And I think certainly they created this concept to help us to recognize that bias is a human condition and that we all have bias. Racism and sexism is sort of bias, uh, sort of with power. Racial bias with power is racism. 
bias with sort of gender power is sexism. And so that's what gives it the ist, if you have the power to negatively affect the lives of others. I ask people this question all the time, like, what's the number one diversity issue in the uh, workplace? Because that's where I do a lot of my work. And people yell out, you know, it's racism or it's classism, you know, and I just laugh at all those and say, no, the number one diversity issue is the one that affects you. And so my experience has been that most people are very clear headed about the, the issues that affect them. They just don't recognize and have empathy for those that affect others. I believe that it's very few people that are mature enough to really deal with a singular topic like racism. Because the problem with too often, so I've, I've gone through all uh, many of the periods. So I started my business in 1991. So I went from where we were just dealing with racism till then racism and sexism. And then it went to sexual orientation. And then it went to sort of everything in the world. And I can tell you that today that if you only focus on racism in most audiences, then it really gives oftentimes people of color not a lot to do. So I have to always come to the conversation as a victim and white people have to come as perpetrators. And so if that's the dynamic that we create, then it puts a target on my back. People get tired of talking about it. It feels like a birthday party for someone else. And so what I would say, it takes a a terribly sophisticated, high-level group of thinkers to really talk about racism, just to land in that conversation. That means that we're going to take some of the models that we develop in that conversation to then apply them in all the other ways that bias manifests itself. I would say we're seeing that President Trump has been a lightning rod in terms of creating greater visibility about the divide that exists between people. And I would say that people of color can't even understand why or how white people could support a man who has no real integrity at all. He doesn't know a word of scripture. And I would say because I'm a a diversity critical thinker, I think about all sides. So I understand why people support Donald Trump. Many of us. We love God, we believe in God, but we want to see something here on earth. So God is in heaven, we need something here on earth. And I think many white Christians, it's not, the racial thing is not in their minds much at all. They're really thinking about, I need a bully pulpit, somebody to fight against abortion and somebody to fight against our borders and liberalism. That's really the bigger part but they don't really have a great enough appreciation for how much our cultural identities and pain drive us to our interest and our passions. And any of us, when we decide that we value somebody and they're on our team, then we will oftentimes ignore their limitations and things that they do that we don't line up with. I did some of that with President Obama. I don't think in any way President Obama and Trump are the same, but they get put up as though they are. But in terms of, uh, of racism, I think that when whites and blacks come together in church, we worship together, we praise God together, we might even shout together, but we really don't know each other, don't know each other's stories. And I think that that's one of the big problems. I said, I think before we started that, it's more common to see black people and people of color go to white churches or a church with a white pastor than it is to see a mass of white people go to a church 
that has a black pastor, I think that's one indicator that we still have a lot of work to do. Yeah, let me let me interject something. You and I, I you know, it's, man, I'm gonna tell you that was that was good. I, I may have to I may have to call you and just get with you to just talk about that. But but I, I'm gonna tell you something that I I've noticed that the reason diversity, I've been noticing that in the corporate world, diversity, uh, ethnicity, inclusion is is under attack because just like in the church world, someone feels that someone is in a position because they're not qualified to be there. That, that one of the things that makes the issue of leadership in church and leadership in the world seem to be such a controversial issue is you're not qualified to be there. My sister is not qualified to be a pastor. She's a woman. She's a sister. She's not qualified. And so the, the, the one of the things I've had to really wrestle with, and I'm really wrestling with it, I want to be very transparent, is that I've been really praying about, Lord, give me the heart of John the Baptist. And I've had to remind people that John the Baptist is the first cousin of Jesus. Jesus gets anointed by his cousin who says, listen, this this the guy, this the cat. And then one day John finds himself in jail and cuz does not come see him at all. I, I mean, I've, I've gone through the scripture a hundred ways to Sunday and said, did he, did he send him some stamps? Did he send him, did he put some on his books? And he, he, don't, he don't come see my cousin at all. So John has to send out word and say, hey, Ask her, what's up? Why is it that I'm, I'm struggling this way? And when Jesus comes back and tells him, John does not protest. He does not kick. He said, I must decrease that he must increase. And I, and I really believe God is putting our church in that place and say, listen, if, if, especially I'm a Pentecostal. So I'm, you know, I tell people, we believe the Holy Ghost is pouring out his spirit upon all flesh then I have to be open enough to say that one day he may anoint some flesh that I don't like. He may anoint some flesh that I'm like, man, come on, Jesus. That's what, you, that's what we're working with over there. What we doing? And I think one of the reasons it is such a hard problem in the church is, is just like you said, brother, we won't be honest enough to admit that our biases, we will fight for our biases more than we'll fight for the Bible at certain points. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and that's, I mean, that was just good stuff. That was really good stuff. Right. Thank you. When it comes to social justice and there are issues with the police, like George Floyd, for instance, there is great pain involved for the black community. For example, I know of a church that whenever the George Floyd incident happened, it was not even acknowledged from the pulpit. And it really did a lot of damage to the people of color in that congregation. Can you share your thoughts on what the black community is feeling when these situations happen? I'd say that I'll jump in and then, and then I'll pass the torch. But I would say that there's just a battle that's going on around cultural values. White people generally, this is a generalization, so it doesn't apply to all white people, but just if we're talking in generalizations, and this then goes to the white church. Uh, their view is that police have a difficult job, and they don't get enough appreciation. And they oftentimes say that, you know, hey, you know, sometimes you'll make mistakes in the midst of trying to police bad people. And they feel that uh, it feels as though the black community sort of generalizes a negative view uh, of police 
And so you get sort of tribes and tribalism that happens. And then when a George Floyd dies, most everybody can see, oh my goodness, that was terrible. But how long does that last? And, and, and that's what we see. So we see these sort of peaks and valleys around that. When the civil rights legislation came about, on one day, there was white drinking fountains and black drinking fountains. And on the next day, the law said, you can't do that. So white people said, we don't. We don't see color and we don't have bias. So one day it was out there. The next day I said, I don't because the law said, now whatever happens in my heart, good luck trying to figure that one out. And so that's what we, we're living in a world right now. uh, And and this is going to seem like the long way. So, you know, civil rights legislation came about. Uh, Affirmative action said to companies, you've got to be fair to all people. So you have to put together a plan. So they kept coming back to the companies like, hey, do you have any blacks? Do you have any uh, Hispanics yet? Uh, No, we can't find any. We can't find any. So finally, the government said quotas. Because you keep telling me you're unsuccessful, now I've got to say you've got to get numbers because that's not right. And so what happened is over the years, everything that we did for women, for people of color and others, we had to label it. Programs for women, leadership development for women, this for minorities, scholarships for minorities. So we had to label all our stuff because we weren't getting anything. And now that's what the attorney generals are going after is you labeled something that meant you discriminated against others. So white bias remained quiet and sort of underneath and all the things that are supposed to help us were vocalized. That's the world that we live in right now is that the system, if we never say anything out loud, it will just favor the dominant culture. Uh, People that are white, male, college-educated, Christians, that's the dominant culture, and we will get privileges in those spaces if nobody's saying anything. You know, when um, Stefan Clark was killed, I think that was in 2016, I think, my husband was pastoring in a predominantly black church, And he was furious because Stefan Clark was someone who was killed here in our our, uh, city in Sacramento. And we had members of the church who knew him, who were friends and family of him. And my husband was empathizing with them. He was drawn into the emotions of it. And his sermon that week was so fired. Like he was so angry, but justifiably so. In response, he was then called into the office where the elders told him he was too passionate and he was yelling and was making people feel concerned. It was a black church. Oh, my. my. (laughs) So, like, the complexities of this is so much bigger than we realize because the church that we attended used to be a white church. So the members there were used to code switching to fit dominant culture. So that after all of the white people left, because it was too many black people, they were still adopting that same thought process and resisting the emotions that they justifiably should have had, right? Then you fast forward, we're now going to a white church, the soft comp, that church that I mentioned. And um, that was in 2020 when we realized that something was just not right there. Because as there are riots all over the entire world, our pastor there was saying, well, we need to do something about these rioters because we need law and order. And my husband and I were sitting there like, 
what the heck is going on right now? Like, you got to be kidding me. <laughs> because wow. at a black church, he's told to sit down and be quiet. He's too passionate. He's too loud. He's too angry. At a white church, we're just crazy rioters who are actually exhibiting our rights as, you know, protesters, right? It was insane. And that was the season where my husband and I had to wrestle with that and be like, you know what? This world is crazy. Like we're living in the craziest of times because it is so complicated. It's on both sides though. White thought, white white thinking, white theology, it, it it's it's impacted everyone because all of us have to bend lean toward dominant culture. And so, you know, like Eric was saying, we have to make sure like you're looking on the inside. What is the actual bias? What is the issue that's underneath everything? And then when we can figure out how to deal with that, then change can happen. Otherwise you're just passing laws and then people are going to abide by them. So they don't go to prison. But the moment you can get rid of those laws, we are getting rid of affirmative action. Right, right, right. Let me, let me give you some, just let me try to answer your question more directly in this way, uh, that oftentimes w w if we don't know people, we do not know their story. Exactly. And so every time we hear it, it just sounds like more complaining. But I've seen if I had a dollar for every white male father who was not uh, uh, working on sexist uh, behavior in the workplace until they had a daughter. And then she was in the workplace. Then all of a sudden, so I'm like, oh, my God, you know, they're holding my baby back. You know, you understand it then. Or white parents that adopt black children. They don't know it until they've adopted the black children. And then they see how everybody is treating them differently. And so uh, a lot of times that's why I'm saying if we're even in the same church, if I haven't had time to walk in your shoes, then I have no idea what you're up against. Now, when I first started doing my work, in the 90s, I thought my job was to be a diversity ghostbuster, to go into organizations and gun down the racist, sexist, bigoted, you know, homophobes. And I did that for a couple of years. And I had a formula. I was going to lose a third of the audience because I was going to call them a racist or a sexist. A third was going to be on the fence. Like, I'm not sure if this guy is crazy or sane. But the third that I won over, I felt like they were going to change the world. And I felt like God called me into the principal's office and said, Eric, what are you doing? Like, why are you losing so many people? And so he helped me to transform my style from one of blaming and shaming to one of being more transparent around my own biases and creating environments that were psychologically safe so that people could tell their truth without uh, repercussion. And what I discovered is that when you stop chasing people, they stop running and then they can really be open about like this. And then I'm going to turn over to pastor like this white worker told me one time. And I see more transparency in the world than I do in the church. He said to me, he said, uh, Eric, he said, my father was a grand wizard in the Ku Klux Klan. He said, I grew up a racist all my life. He said, my daughter ended up getting pregnant by a black fella. He said, and I kicked her out of my house and I disowned her as though I didn't even have a daughter. And to me, I had written her off. He said, she ended up marrying this black fella. He said, and you know, my wife is kind of a softie. He said, so my wife uh, invited the grandbaby over one uh, Thanksgiving. He said, before I knew it, I was throwing her in the air, bouncing her on my knee, hugging her. I'd fallen in love. He said, then a couple more years went by and my wife invited my son-in-law over to, for Christmas. He said, Eric, I met him. 
He said, he's a better man than me. He said, so my wife, my daughter, my grandbaby, and my son-in-law have yanked me into the 21st century. He said, I need this class that you're teaching because I have a lot of the same old friends and I'm trying to figure out how to work on them. Here's what I know, Aaron, that the love of God, the true love of God is more powerful than anything. And that when we operate, and this is the hope that I have for the church, that as we begin to operate out of the true love of God, then we seek to understand how our brothers and sisters and others are hurting and marginalized. And we want to open up our hearts to love on them and to understand their story. And ever since I changed my style, it's rare for me to ever lose a person because I just love people deeply. And I believe that love is stronger than hate. You know, that, that's that's good stuff. You know, and here's the tension that that I you know I have. I'm, I'm a bishop. I'm I'm in a very conservative church. I, I would say we as a classical people are pretty much conservative. We are kind of yeah. You know, we're, yeah. You know, it's just kind that's just kind of how we are as a culture, even. Right. But as I as I thought about uh, even the question, one of the one of the challenges. My undergrad is in political science. I'm not a theologian by training. Uh, you know, being the Pentecostal, you you get called, and the Lord kind of helped you down a little. So I, I kind of came through it that way. I study, I read. But one of the things that, that I had to remind my friends is related to any of the issues that we have. All laws that we have in this country have been laws of accommodation. Somebody realized, hey, I got to make peace with a group. And so this is what I need to do to make peace. You know, we've been bringing up issues of quotas. I say quotas have never really been for the people who get the quotas. No. It's been for the folks who said, listen, this is how many we're going to take. We're going to take right. seven of y'all, man. Right. Eight, you right. Know, it's eight, number eight got to go out the door. Yeah. Uh, That's funny. One of the things that, I, that I've had to wrestle with, and I really do wrestle with this, is the tension of two things can be right at the same time mm. and look like they're diametrically opposed. Mm. We want law enforcement. Yeah, we we want we want law and order. My wife was a probation officer, so we want that. So so it's never that. However, we want that law and order to be handled in a fair way to all. Uh, I live in a predominantly white neighborhood. Grateful to the Lord. But one day my son was walking from the high school, which is four blocks up the street, four blocks up the road. Been walking back and forth from that school to my house. Right. And one day he called. He comes in the house and says, "Hey, Dad, the, the cops stopped me. The cops stopped you. So I'm, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not upset yet." He tells me that the cop stops me and and uh, begins to question him about a few things. And and uh, just because I'm the pastor and bishop, I have these privileges. Like I do have some privilege. I know the chief of police here in my city. So I, I happen to call him and say, hey, "Let me ask a question. Are we stopping everybody?" That's all I'm, I, I just, listen, I ain't against stopping people. I just need to make sure we stopping everybody. Right. And he said, Reverend, I, I don't know what all would happen, but I, I assure you that we are handling this in an in, in equitable manner. So I, I let it go. Well, one day I'm riding through the neighborhood and I get pulled over. I'm 10 and 2. Right. right. Immediately. Right. I'm 10 right. and 2. Right. Yes, sir, Mr. Officer, how can I help you? And the guy will give him this. He was not being a jerk, but I noticed something. When I told him who I was and that I knew the chief, he went from 10 to 1. Right. And I asked the question to the young man. I said, yep, look, brother, I listen, I understand you're in, a, you're in a tough spot. You don't know if I got a gun. You don't know what I have here. I said, but I would tell you this. You can be on alert at 10, but your voice needs to be at 2. 
I said, because if it was somebody else, we could have had a situation. And I've always said that whether it be Floyd, I think sometimes that we don't realize how our biases tune us up. Right. Right. We're not, we don't want to be honest in these conversations. I have things I don't like. I'm, I'm an old school black Pentecostal preacher. I like to dress up on Sunday. One of my pet peeves on Sunday that I'm trying to get through is when people come to church with holes in their jeans, I just want to go, ah, what are we doing around here? Of all the jeans you can wear, why are you wearing jeans with holes in it? I'm not going to show but you the you jeans what? I'm wearing right now. Okay, all right. Don't do it to it, daughter. <laughs> but you know what? I, I have had to understand that, first off, that's my bias. <laughs> and I'd rather you come with a pair of jeans with holes on than you come butt naked. I, I just got I got to find I got to find that level. And one of the things that I've said that we may have to have these conversations. Listen, let's find your level of truth and transformation. Yeah. That what my brother said and what my sister experienced is that many times people don't want to think, at least acknowledge the truth. Right. That there's a bias that made you respond the way you did. I'm right. in part. I'm literally up the street from Parkland, Florida. On February the 14th, the Parkland shooting happened. I was called to the campus. And as you stated, it's amazing to me how the whole world stopped. We all went out there. We were all there. We were pro-law enforcement. But the young man who did the killing was mentally ill. And I just flat out said, if that little boy would have been a little browner, he wouldn't have been mentally ill. He'd have been dead. Well, Anthony, that's, that's not right. I said, guys, I got too much evidence that when it appears to be someone brown, they're not mentally ill. They're a threat. When they're a little out of hue, they're mentally ill, and we need to find a way to, to deal with them. And I said, that's a problem. And so when you talk about the issues of George Floyd or Freddie Gray or different things of that nature, I think that one of the things we must do is just be honest and say, listen, we don't, we don't see this thing the same. And part of the reason we don't see it the same is because you don't have to see it the same. My son, I tell him, you, you got your driver's license? 10 and 2. If a cop pulls you over, call me, put the phone on speaker, let me hear what's going on. I'll get there. Nobody's having that conversation on the other side of the fence. And if they are, they, what they do is call the guy, hey, listen, you got my son, uh, get him out of there, he's gone in 10 minutes. You know, I got to go down there and have a, a peace and, you know, bring all the mothers from the church, you know, you know, we shall overcome before people go, well, oh, they're they, they out there side. That should not be the case. And I still see that consistency. And that's why my brother's job is so tough. Because I think sometimes when you, when he has to go in there and, and I, I applaud you, bro, uh, cause I know to go into the room, you can't be Malcolm. You got to be Martin. You know, you, you can't go in there, fight the power. You know, because, oh, my Lord, that's what he's doing. And I feel that one of the great challenges of our days is that we have been labeled. I, I think by my dear sister, I, I can almost I can almost in my mind just see that when they see it go, there she go. There goes sister soldier right there. There she go. <laughs> we shall overcome. right? There. And she has to battle that bias just to be afforded the opportunity to say, listen, I'm not what you think, but I do need to make you think the way I think so that you can better think. And I want to let my sister talk because I'm ADHD and 
turn taking is important for me to sit on my hands. So I am too. I totally understand. I'm like, I'm going to be a team player today. Right. <laughs> it looks you know, nice on you. Thank you. <laughs> you know, one of the, the struggles that I have is I have three boys. My daughter is my youngest. And when I started having my boys, it became really real. <laughs> I'm looking around the world very differently when I've got little baby yeah. boys in my hands. But my Absolutely. oldest sister is 13. And so my oldest son is 13 years old and he's mildly autistic. He gets very, very nervous when he is talked to by strangers. He gets very, very nervous when he feels like he's in trouble. He gets yeah. awkward. And yeah. it is terrifying right. to right. me to yes, acknowledge that I have to let my son go in this world. I was That's a homeschool right. mom for the majority of his life. I just sent my, my kids to school for the first time last right. year. This is their second year in traditional school. And it was terrifying because this was the first time I had to let them out of my hands, out of my sight every single day, literally handing my babies over to white teachers that I don't know how they really right. feel on the inside because they're not going to say that during an interview. And so when I think about, you know, police shootings and police brutality and all of what this world is doing to young black men, I see my son. I was watching a video yesterday from Rubia Garcia and... She is a white blonde woman who lives in New Orleans. She is so rugged, but it's very, 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 very knowledgeable. She was a social studies teacher and now she's a lawyer or in school to be a lawyer. And she fights and she teaches and she is raw with her words. And she was talking about all of these things. She was talking about Tamir Rice and how he was, what, I think 12 years old when, they, when he was killed for a toy gun. And it's like, so when we look at like all of these issues, some people can see an issue. I see my baby. You know what I mean? Right. And that's a right. totally different conversation. When I talk right. to a friend whose husband is a cop and she's, she's. That's all right. She feels mm -hmm. the, the comfort that she has knowing that she has a connection. She can talk. She can spit her husband's name in a heartbeat and know that her and her kids are okay. I don't have that. So when I see police brutality, I'm looking at my husband who's commuting for, for two hours a day. So if his car breaks down, is he going to be another person on the side of the street that was asking for help and was shot because someone got scared? Like right. it can't That's be exactly that it. simple. And it absolutely right. is something that every single person in this nation should be furious about because nobody right. should ever have to carry that kind of fear. It's not right. reasonable. You right. wonder why black women have such horrible, horrible rates when it comes to their health and like maternal death rates. Like we are carrying so much fear, just praying to God every day that our children are going to be okay, that our husbands are going to come home. Like it's insane. And so I share my story and I'm so honest about it because like you guys were saying, we have to let people know our stories. Otherwise they don't see the humanity in it. I am a person. I am a mom. I am a stay-at-home mom who was cradling babies back to back. My kids are like six, like about two years apart, each of them. And as I'm letting my babies out in the world, I know how people see them. My son is taller than I am and he's muscular. He's 13, but you would think he was probably about 16. 
And I know that. And I'm like, he is adorable and he's gorgeous and he's smart and he's talented, but somebody's going to see a threat when they look at him. There's no doubt about that. That is literally the curse of the holy hothead. Because I'm like, you know what? I'm going to have to say something so that at least the people around my sphere can feel everything that I'm sharing. Because if you don't feel it, you will not care. The challenge, and I'm going to say that. So I'm ahead of you now. I've got three boys and a girl as well. (laughs) My My daughter's the oldest. All my sons fall after her. But I'll tell you, Aaron, that... uh, that in many ways, people of color are at the point where they say, I don't want to talk anymore. I'm tired of showing up at the conferences in the big stadiums and we get together with whites. We all cry. We hold hands and we say we're going to really uh, do some racial reconciliation. And then the moment passes and people go back to their lives. And so if you're battling sort of racism in this uh, society, uh, then you oftentimes feel very much alone. You know, I'm gonna tell you something. You know, and I, I'm, I'm gonna say this um, as as a guy, as a conservative black pastor in a church, and I and I, I use that. I don't have a problem saying it. I, I believe the Bible. I'm I'm probably a classic preacher in how I preach, but I do believe that the church can live out its creed. If we would just be honest enough to say, Father, we are flesh and we need your help. Every Sunday, I'm confronted with the reality that after I preach this, and I tell people, I say, listen, I, I preach to people every Sunday that Jesus is the answer to everything. And then I'm afraid to ask him certain questions because I don't know if I want him to answer those questions. And if the church would just be honest and say, listen, I like you. I don't know if I want to live around you. I like you, but when I see you, I don't see you. I see my my fear. If we would just make those statements, I believe we'd be fine. I didn't even get into, you know, talking about diversity, ethnicity, and inclusion, because there are just some things we probably will never see eye to eye on. And again, I've reminded this. We don't have to see eye to eye to stand shoulder to shoulder. I, there's some biblical things that I'm going to be hardcore on till the day I die. That I'm saying the Bible promotes this. Uh, I thought about my dear sister. You know, it's so funny you mentioned uh, one of my jobs as bishop is I have to appoint pastors. And so I've appointed women pastors. And I understand a young lady has a very difficult task if she's appointed a pastor, especially if she's married. Because see, you have this, this conflict of I'm a wife, but I'm the pastor of my husband. That is a very, very difficult dynamic. And I tell them, now listen, sisters, don't go in that church, you know, running over brothers because you got a brother at home that that you got to be careful with. But I've had to remind my brothers, if your wife is called a pastor, you are no less a man. You're no less a husband if God has called your your wife to pastor. Um, When people have issues, I mean, right now we got this, you know, people have issues. I'm a Pentecostal preacher that believes that the Holy Ghost gives people power to get through their issues. But you know what? I can't be afraid when people come with issues. And and we talk about diversity. I even tell people many times that's what to me the greatest diversity is, that God can bring people with so many various issues and redeem them, revive them, and still release them to do his work. 
And if the church would just be honest and say, listen, we're not perfect. We have issues. We're going to call sin, sin. We're going we're gonna, to, listen, whether it's male chauvinism, sin, whether it's addiction to a substance, sin, we will still call sin, sin. But this is the one place that a sinner can be saved. A sinner can be secure. And then the Lord, I believe, can resend them out. And I hope that when we talk about diversity, that's what we should be looking at as well. Like when I think about, you know, diversity, of course, naturally, the assumption is gender diversity, ethnicity diversity. But I agree. I think, you know, we need to make sure that we're we're making space for people in the church to be themselves. And there is so much diversity that comes with that. I got my beginning with uh, recovery ministry through Celebrate Recovery. And Celebrate Recovery is an extremely white space. But the one that I was going to was the most diverse one that existed anywhere, right? And the man who called me into leadership after leaving a church that said I wasn't allowed to lead, he was white. He was white and he was bald. <laughs> and when he was calling me into leading this ministry. Anointed, you, bald people are anointed. Don't worry about it. You see, this, 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 that's an anointing. There's an anointing on bald-headed people. Okay. But white and bald cause, causes a different feeling <laughs> where it's like, are, are we good here? Are we good? <laughs> but he saw me. He saw something in me that no one else had been able to see. And so he allowed me to learn how to lead there. I got my first opportunity to speak to an audience, a mixed audience of men and women in that ministry. I was terrified. But the moment that I started speaking, I was like, this is where I was supposed to be all along. Like it felt so effortless once I was there. Right. But he still hadn't addressed his issue with women. So he was only okay as long as I was under him. Right. And so it's like, all of our stories have so much value, but we have to be willing to listen to each other's stories. I understood his story. So I understood where he was coming from and I understood what his issues were. I was probably a little bit spicier in sharing with him what I saw, but he got the message and we're fine now. Thank you. <laughs> but we had to listen to each other. He understood my journey. I understood his journey. We could get to a place where when we hadn't talked for like a year and a half because of some really unpleasant experiences. But when I was struggling, I still went to him because I knew that he understood me more than most of the other people that I knew. You know, and so like that level of connection and relationship is possible. It is real because we have to listen though. One of the things that I teach my clients with All Made Well um, is we have to voice it. We have to be willing to share. We have to be willing to talk. We have to say what is going on with us in safe spaces where we can actually like wrestle with that thing, but actually get used to saying it out loud. Once God has healed that thing after you've been talking about it for a little bit, then you get to this really wonderful sweet spot where you can use your story to powerfully impact other people. But most people try to start there when you can't start there. I couldn't start with, oh, I'm going to talk about my husband's addiction to pornography on day one. Absolutely not. No, I sat in a circle full of women that made it safe for me to talk about that for years before I was willing to talk about it from a place of strength and power, clarity and healing. We can't start with the stage, though. 
the work has to be done on the side, in the background, quietly, where God can do the wrestling with us. That disrupted time is what everybody's trying to avoid. That's why stuff doesn't change. The, the, the difficulty in life is not that you're not going to face difficult things. It's who can be there, not maybe even to solve the problems, but to validate you while you're in the problems. And my concern is that the church is not willing to do that too often. Uh, and race just becomes a lightning rod and a place of ignorance. And I would suggest to you that I think that it's got to get worse before it gets better. I don't think we're done. I think that this year, 2024, is going to be a very difficult year. Uh, but I'll, I'll speak about Trump again uh, in, in terms of a woman, a white woman, that he was using in his campaign stand to say, look, they're letting Hunter Biden off, and this woman that was at January 6th, this old grandmother, they're putting her in jail. Well, that old grandmother came on, uh, and she, she said, spoke for herself. And she said, look, she says, I have awakened. She says, and I've asked the former president to stop using my name and my story. She said, I feel like I was hoodwinked into going there on January 6th. She says, and I did something that was wrong. She says, and I got uh, jail time because I did something that was wrong. She says, I know better now. And I believe that, unfortunately, there are too many people that are going to have to experience uh, the downside of, of this kind of cultural hijacking uh, before they kind of wake up. Or we could really lean in deeper to the power of prayer, because I believe that if you make anything uh, a matter of prayer, there's nothing that God can't do. And so I have all the optimism in the world that Christians of all races and all nationalities can get to the right places. That's what I know. Uh, but our flesh, for all of us, we are not just spirit. We are also flesh. And so I think that that's where when we really begin to develop meaningful relationships across differences, we'll understand and be more concerned about our brethren and our sisters and what they're up against. Uh, I think that the church is still very sexist. Uh, I think that black pastors and black men in church leadership are very sexist. So we have as much of a blind spot and ignorance about that than white people would have about racism. I don't think that black men are any more enlightened about uh, sexism uh, than whites may be about racism. I like this conversation because it's, it's causing me to think. You know, one of the things that I think as relates to any of these issues, it is always still a matter of power and, and yes. position. Yes, yes. And I think one of the great challenges that that the church has is we have adopted what I call a westernized model of success. Yep. As opposed to a biblical model of success. I just talked about Love John, the Baptist, that John yep. said, I, I'm ready to decrease that he might increase. Right. And I would say that if the church would get the John model, that would be the Christ model. Jesus, I mean, I would tell people the this. Jesus this model. Yeah, right. yeah, the Jesus model. I, I remind people, I said, Jesus is is all 100% God comes to right. the earth and goes silent for 30 years. Who does that? Who has all right. that juice and don't let nobody know I got the juice? So then right. in the three, three and a half years, he does this stuff and then he goes out on a murder rap, on, on, a, on an insurrection rap, 
I'm just go wait a minute. <laughs> right. You know, you that just that is just that is so counterculture. And I would say this that that as we relate to diversity, you know, ethnicity and inclusion, that if we would adopt the Jesus model, and again, I stand there flat footed in the clear, that there are days I don't know if I adopt the Jesus model. That that right. I I like being the bishop. Like you like the daughter said, when I go to church, the bishop get the big piece of chicken, he get the best <laughs> chair. I get the best parking space. No, I will just, I, ain't no need to be, ain't no need to be lying and saying, do I, do I have to give that up? <laughs> uh, I got to let that go. But I, I'm praying every day that we would be honest enough. And I, I'm telling you, I'm doing soul searching to say, Lord, if you need me to move, I'm moving. And Lord, I don't see myself as less than because you move me and then use someone that I wouldn't have used. That's, that becomes the real big issue that God can choose to use somebody that I personally would not want to be used. And again, I, as a Pentecostal, I have to remind us, we can't believe that God can claim everybody and then get mad when God claims that somebody. Wait a minute, come on. Again, I could go into preaching more, but I, I just pray, and I was asking you, my brother, when you talk to, do you get a chance to talk to churches on both sides about these issues? Or are you have you been confined more to a corporate model and you find that the church kicks back against it? Yeah, so I've had a few churches. I had a pastor. Uh, I went to a, a sort of a multicultural church with a white pastor. I was his worship leader. It was one of the most phenomenal diversity training sessions I've ever had in my life because the Spirit of God was there. And after I got done with two days of training, he said, Eric, are you done with your training? I said, yes, sir. He pulled out his clipboard from under his seat and had a hundred more questions because his curiosity was so high. And he just felt like I'm in a safe place. And there's a million things that I've wanted to ask uh, people of color. And he just started asking one after another after another. And we just wept and we cried. And I know that God, what God is able to do. I would tell you, that I'm going to say a bold statement right now that you say we're not edited. I would say to you that white evangelical Christians probably would not vote for Jesus Christ for president right now. Mm-mm, not at all. If Jesus was here running for the office, they wouldn't vote for him. Because he'd have open borders and all kind of stuff. He'd be down there trying to heal people and praying for the sick and stuff. Hanging out with the poor and prostitutes and stuff. No, no, no. Nobody be voting for him. And not a lot of black people either. While we think we'd be right there voting for him. No. So we have lost our way in terms of the model that we should be following. And so I don't have, I really expend very little energy blaming, shaming whites or anybody. I don't, I don't spend any time in that conversation because it's futile and it doesn't yield anything. There's, a, there's a, uh, a poem that says, I'd rather see a sermon than hear one any day. Right. Uh, my mother dedicated all five of her children back to God as preachers. And I was laughing a couple years ago saying, because my mother's dead, I'm so glad that I'm not my mother's preacher. And I was in a corporation, and God just said, ding, ding, hey, 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 this is the ministry. What? This is the ministry your mother prayed for. And so I'm in the world being a Christian. And uh, because I do diversity, I love that I do diversity. 
because diversity, if it's not careful, attacks Christians. And so I get to be a wonderfully open Christian in a secular world. Uh, last point, I just spoke at the Inclusion Conference in Savannah, Georgia. That's the Society for Human Resource Management, their national inclusion conference. So I was there speaking to an audience, and a white man came up to me afterwards. He said, you know, Eric, he said, I was uh, feeling kind of lost in this space of diversity. He said, sometimes as a white man, I feel like I'm not really accepted. He said, and I was saying, God, you need to show me a sign, he said, because I, I think I'm done. And then he came to hear me speak. And he said, I was so blown away by how cavalierly you just throw out your faith. He says, and I said, that's the model I was looking for. And I told him, I said, I'm not trying to proselytize people. That's not my objective. I just say who I am just like everybody else's. And then I love on all people. And I let the love of God, that's my superpower. My superpower is not what I know. It's who I know. And it's who I serve. And I uh, tell you, all of us need this lesson, not just white people. Our preacher was saying there, you could do a whole diversity thing in an all-black church about them. Forget talking about whites or anybody else at all. We struggle with our own diversities. Yes. And so there's just a lot of healing work that needs to be done in this space. You are right. The church has a lot of healing work to do. That is for sure. I've done a lot of consulting work over the years, and one of the issues that I've seen across the country is a lack of representation in the church. I personally believe that the leadership of the church should reflect that of their congregation, which means that there should be representation on staff, on the stage, in the boardroom, and it should trickle down into each ministry department. Unfortunately, that's not the world we live in currently, nor is it a world that some church leaders think is necessary. What can be done to promote diversity, equity, and inclusion in the church? What systems or accountability structures can be installed into churches so that we can do what we're supposed to be doing, which is promoting unity and also preventing church hurt? Is there even a DEI approach that we could take, and what would that look like? When I started going to a predominantly white church, we started noticing that like their entire staff, like the, the foundation of their staff was their family. And they pulled in other people here and there, <laughs> but like they send out their family Christmas card every year because it's their family church. This church has 10,000 members, but their family is the center point of leadership, all white. Right. And God gave me this beautiful download a couple of days ago and it kind of blew my mind because as a as a, a, a church planting pastor, it was kind of like, oh, OK, but God, he let me know. He was like the church was never meant to be any person's legacy. It's not theirs to own. It's not theirs to pass on. It's not ours. And so when I started, you know, the church that my husband and I are doing, we are the refuge. 
It is not something that we own, that we built, that we are passing on to our kids. My company, All Made Well, is what I intend to pass on to my kids, but the church is God's. That's his legacy, not mine. And so when we look at church leadership, yes, leadership should absolutely reflect the people that are there because it's the people that we're supposed to be building up in order to further the gospel and spread this thing to the entire world. Like that should be a no brainer. I think that the bottom line really is what we've been saying all along, power. If pastors are willing to say, I have a certain privilege and I am going to model Jesus and put my privilege down in order to lift up someone who does not have that privilege, then we will have a church that is worthy of saying, I am God's legacy. Right now, God is not saying that's mine. He's looking like, what the heck is this? <laughs> because we're not doing what he told us to do. And the few of us that are trying, everyone else is looking at us like we're crazy. <laughs> it absolutely has to start with power, though. One of my favorite lessons in my program is called Privilege Down, because everyone has to take every everyone has to have that story. I have four children. It is very easy for me as a black mom to be like, listen, I run this house. You will do what I told you to do. And there is no talking about it because I am in authority. So what did I have to do as God is teaching me this privilege down lesson? I'm listening to my kids' hearts. I'm letting them question me. We wrestle through and talk through issues because they are less privileged than I am because they are younger than I am. Therefore, for me to put my privilege down means I'm not going to make you do what I want you to do for my convenience. Yes, I will definitely make them do stuff like don't cross the street, stuff like that. But I'm going to listen to them when my son doesn't want to do something and he has an attitude about it. I'm like, okay, listen, I understand that you're feeling a certain kind of way right now. I do still expect respect the same way that I respect you, but I'm willing to listen to you so they understand how to talk to me. My daughter is six years old. That little girl has absolutely no idea that she's the smallest person in our house because she has been raised in an environment where her voice matters. And so when her brothers are not listening to her, I'm like, "Mm -mm -mm. are you listening to your sister? Because she's trying to communicate something to you. When I'm looking at pastors and they are looking at the, the lay people, all those people out there who they're supposedly serving, but are really serving them. No, that's not how we do this. That's not how we do this. This is supposed to be a team effort. All of us are leaders in the spheres where God has put us. If we understand that, we can do great work. But when we have one person that sits on the throne and it's not God telling everybody else, you're serving me, that's never going to work. And it's never going to be something that reflects the heart of God. But that person has to be willing to address their issues with power, their desire for power. Why did you go to seminary? Was it because of a call or was it because you wanted the power, significance, authority, platform, and all of the money that you thought would come with that? Those are issues that need to be jostled and wrestled. And yeah, whether or not they're going to do that, though, I don't know. (laughs) Because that's a whole other issue. (laughs) Right. And so I'll take a slightly different approach. And I'll say, Aaron, to your a community, people in your audience that have stayed this late into the uh, podcast, kudos to them. <laughs> um, but, but for those uh, that are teetering right now <clears throat> and they're a little bit frustrated about, do I have to do this diversity thing? 
I've got a story for them that I'm going to sort of liberate them from that, uh, that challenge, that charge. I work with major corporations. I was working with a Fortune 100 company, global company. Uh, they asked me to come in and coach their leaders because they were missing the mark. And so one of the Japanese executives says to me, Eric, uh, I need you to understand that I'm not about diversity. I'm about profit. I said, okay, well, if you're about profit, then you have to be about diversity. And he said, no, 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 let me restate it. <clears throat> he says, I'm not on this diversity thing. I'm about profit. I said, oh, I got it. And so I said, here's what I'm going to say. Now, all the other executives started looking at me like, Eric, you know, Eric could say anything at, at times. And so I said, here's what I want to recommend to you. I want you to get the biggest megaphone you can. And I want you to go all over this com company sharing that message, that you're not on diversity, that you're about profit. I said, now, when you share that with some communities of color and other diverse groups, some of them are going to push back. I said, but just like you did with me, you say, no, no, no. I'm about profit. I'm not about diversity. I said, and I can tell you almost like if I had a crystal ball that many of them will leave your company. I said, but don't let that discourage you. And so here's my message to anybody in your audience that is questioning whether they really want to do this thing called diversity. I say, you don't have to. Do not do this. If you don't understand it, if you don't believe in it, don't do it. Don't do it because other churches are doing it. And here I'm going to go even further, and I'm going to say that my prayer is that God will bless you and anoint your ministry. In other words, if you never take the opportunity to embrace this thing called diversity, my character, my Christian faith is not going to have me pull against you because of that. But I'll say to you this that if you begin to embrace your people and their individual stories, there's no, thing, there's no way that you can miss what God has blessed. Let no man call cursed. Again, full disclosure, you must be intentional in identifying and introducing. I, I tell you, that's, that's what my job is, to identify and introduce. I have a Suburban, and I I, know, I, didn't, I got a Suburban because I didn't want to get a minivan. At the time, I was doing youth ministry, Woo! and all the youth pastors had minivans. <laughs> and I said, I am not getting a minivan. Just not going to do it. Right. So I get the Suburban, and I realize the day I get the Suburban, all of a sudden, I start noticing Suburbans everywhere. Mm -hmm. I mean, just everyone looks like, that's going to be a Suburban. That's a Suburban. That's a Suburban. The moment that I was introduced to a Suburban, it changed my view. And all of a sudden, I started just seeing suburbans everywhere. And I asked us as leaders to say, Lord, touch my view so that I can see the potential yes. everywhere. That I, that I can see, like you said, I can see the person everywhere. Right. Sometimes our churches become a closed cluster. Right. And it, and it becomes easy. Let's just be real. Again, as a pastor, as a bishop, it becomes so easy to say, listen, I got these five knuckleheads. That's all I want to deal with. Right. That's, that's all I can deal with. Right. But if we're serious about being the church, mm. and in a day of so many complex issues, in a day of such politicization, we believe, and I, I again, this has been helpful to me, y'all kind of help me walk through devotion, that I must be prepared to say, God, I see him. 
And I don't just see him as what I don't like. I see him about as somebody you came to save, to deliver. And even in saving and delivering them, I may have to wait a little bit until you develop them to the point to where I really can tolerate them. (laughs) You know, you you talked about, you talked about my grandchildren. Um, Over the holidays, I have one that's seven months and I have one that's uh, two years old. And my my two year old, we were having a hard time getting him to be potty trained. Man, he was he was he was he was acting like his granddaddy. He said, "Listen, if you gonna change me, I'll let you change me." <laughs> but he came here over the holiday and it clicked. But I had to be patient until it clicked. I had to go in there with the restroom and you know help him. You sit on the potty and you know he missed the potty and you know I thought to myself, "Good Lord, we got to get this under control because you know." And 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 I never forget. I was he had a he had a situation where he he sat on the potty, but he missed the potty. He so I had to give him the applause for at least getting there. He just didn't get the right. stuff in there. And I had to clean up the bathroom. And the Spirit of the Lord spoke to me. He says, "You know what? That's the life of a believer. Many times mm. that many times people are trying to get right, they just yeah. miss it. That's right. Exactly. That's right. I didn't exactly. spank him. I didn't spank him. I didn't yell. I let matter of fact." He got a, a little button. We had the, the clapping of the hands. Yeah! <laughs> and I thought to myself, God, I thank you for keeping up with me for every day I missed it. Heaven yeah. still applauded. <laughs> Folks, right. the church is the place where God changes lives. Woo! And I don't, want, I don't ever want you to believe. And listen, we battle. We're family. We, gonna, we, we may not. That's right. But I promise you, in a world that's trying to keep you divided, the church is a place that can afford to let you be diverse. And so I make this appeal to you, whether you are where my dear sister is, where my dear brother is, don't give up on God. Don't give up on his church. He is a changer because he's the only one who can change everyone that comes. I love you. And I hope that, listen, I hope you stuck with us during the podcast. I hope we were (laughs) a blessing to you. I love you guys. One praise report. I want to close the loop on the story that I told you. Asked me, have I done this in the church? And I told you one story of my pastor who allowed me to be his worship leader. I've never been as free in any church ever that he just allowed me to allow God to work through me. Uh, He's been in ministry for over 30-something years. Uh, Just a month ago, he turned over his ministry, his pastorate, to a young black pastor. (laughs) And I just, I went there to see this. And I just cried because I felt that the teaching that he had received had changed his heart in such a way that he's installed a black pastor to follow him to pastor this mainly white church. There is absolutely nothing that God's Christians can't do if we sell out our hearts to the spirit of God. And this young man is just a wonderful pastor. He knows the word. He's humble. That's the thing I love most about him. He was just the humility of Christ was in him. That's what we need everywhere. And so, Aaron, I'm so glad that God put it on your heart to try to bring us together to do something that may have an impact to the community that you work with. And I know that God's going to honor the spirit that came upon you to cause you to bring us together. I love the two of you, and I want your contact information. We're going to have to stay together.
<laughs> Absolutely. I was thinking the same thing. I'm like, oh man, you guys are amazing. <laughs> well, I have really good taste in people. <gasps> This has been such a good dialogue, and I hope that everyone out there listening is able to embrace the wisdom that was shared today. And I would love for you guys to share how our listeners can connect with you, whether it be on social media or if you have a podcast or a website. Uh, Can you guys share that information with us? Um, I can be reached on pretty much all of the social platforms as Coach Uwem. That's Coach U-W-E-M. Um, I'm also on TikTok as the All Made Well, the A-M-W Coach. It stands for All Made Well, which is my company. Um, and then I'm also at allmadewell.com. Um, you can reach out to me on any platform, DMs, um, and I will definitely respond. I look forward to reaching out and connecting with all of you guys. This has been a pleasure. I have had more fun this morning than <laughs> I have in a long time. You guys are a phenomenal, phenomenal, and I'm so thankful that you asked me to be a part of this. I have had so much fun today. Good, good. And I run a company, Integrity Development. My website is uh, Integrity Dev, short for development, com. I'm also on LinkedIn, Facebook. I do a podcast every Saturday morning, Diversity Conversations. I'm an author. I wrote a book called Diversity Conversations. So there's a number of ways to be able to get in touch with me. I'm the technology challenge guy. So um, my children get on me. I'm still on Facebook. I think I'm Bishop Anthony Pelt on Facebook. I may be just Anthony Pelt. But if you look up Anthony Pelt, you'll see me or my son, You'll see this bald-headed guy, so just go to that guy. Um, I think on, on Instagram, I'm Bishop Anthony T. Pelt. Um, I've written two books, so if you go to Amazon, look them up. But I'm just I'm just this guy who wants to see people live a radiant, radical, and righteous life. And uh, something we say here in Florida, Coco, I'm praying for you. I need you to just pray for me. I won't harm you with words from my mouth. Man, you guys are so important to me, and I need you to survive. So listen, I love you. Thank you again for the privilege. Ooh, that's an oldie but a goodie. An old Hezekiah Walker jam. That's a whole word and one of my favorite songs, actually. And I think that's an appropriate ending to this episode. One of my favorite lyrics to that song is, I pray for you, you pray for me. I love you, I need you to survive. I won't harm you with words from my mouth. I love you. I need you to survive. And oh man, that part about I I won't harm you with words from my mouth. That is a great intention for all of us to set for this year. And on that musical note, thank you so much for listening. I will catch you in the next episode. for listening to the Touchy Subjects podcast. If you would like more information about what we do and who we are and how you can get involved, check out our website, www.letstalktouchysubjects.com. You can also find us on Instagram at Let's Talk Touchy Subjects. Thanks again for listening and we'll catch you in the next episode.